The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Right. If you have a Bible, open up to Jeremiah 31, where we're going to be this morning, or you can pull it up on your phone, or you can just listen. That's fine, too. Uh, well, today is the last day of our summer interns, so uh, our six ministry interns who have been with us this morning doing announcements and hospital visits and youth camp and VBS and so many other things. Today's uh, officially their last day, so they're welcome to still get Pastor Tim coffee whenever he wants, just <laughs> indefinitely. It's sort of a lifetime commitment that you make there. No, I, uh, I'm grateful for their uh, service to God this summer and our chance as a congregation to get to participate in helping to develop compassionate Christian leaders who are going to serve God and wherever God takes them, as, um, whether it's in vocational ministry or in the business world or in the uh, pr- public sector or, or wherever. So thank you for your investment as a church in helping them to grow um, and helping them to, to gain some experience. Um, I hope that we're going to do it again next summer and with a new crop intern. So if you're going to be in that 18 and 24 range next summer, and you'd like to um, explore questions of vocation and calling and ministry, I hope that we'll get a chance to spend some time together next summer. All right, well, today we are in the book of Jeremiah, and uh, if you've been reading Jeremiah this week or these last couple weeks, and it's been a challenge for you, I want to look at this passage together. If it's been challenging, a couple reasons why, just to make you maybe feel a little more um, not so guilty. Uh, first one, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible by the number of letters. Um, it's longer than Psalms, it's longer than Genesis, it's longer than Ezekiel or Isaiah. So if you feel like you've been reading and reading and you're still behind, there's a good reason for that. Um, also, Jeremiah is not arranged chronologically, it's arranged thematically, so sometimes it's a little hard to follow, and it's overwhelmingly negative. In fact, Jeremiah himself in chapter 20 says that he didn't want to give these sermons that are recorded in the book but they were like fire shut up in his bones that he had to get out. So, what's the value of reading a book that's long, it's confusing, and it's tedious? (laughs) What, maybe more to the point, what's the point of giving a sermon on that today? Um, Jeremiah's book, and this passage in particular, gives us a message that we very much need to hear. In the middle of this incredible storm, we're reminded that God is holy and that we are not. And in the middle of the book of Jeremiah, In the middle chapters, from 30 to 33, there's a break in the storm, and the reason comes clear. There's a a sun in the middle of it, and there's this hope that maybe this cycle that Israel's on, that we're so often on, of disobedience and consequence, disobedience and consequence, disobedience and consequence, will one day be replaced by a different way of being with God. In chapter 31, which uh, Jamie read for us just a moment ago, we get a preview of this in the New Covenant. After telling the reader over and over that Israel will be punished for their sins, 
And these, uh, these punishments would be severe and unavoidable. Jeremiah sort of breaks in the middle and says, it won't always be like this. Yes, Babylon will invade. Yes, there will be consequences for breaking the covenant. But one day it'll be different. One day there'll be a different result for sin. One day you'll be able to relate to God differently. One day this endless cycle will be broken. That's what Jeremiah calls the new covenant. That one day we'll relate to God in an entirely different way than we have in the past. And in our few minutes here together in the sermon, I want to explore what this new covenant is. Because it's so foundational for us as Christians. In fact, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he talks about this verse. He talks about the new covenant. He says that the cu- when he takes the, the cup at communion, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many. He's referencing back here to Jeremiah 31. In fact, Christians named the new, the new collection of biblical books the New Covenant, the Novum Testamentum, which in English becomes known as the, the New Testament, but originally it means the New Covenant. When we talk about the 27 books that make up our New Testament, we're saying this is the new covenant between us and God. And our passage from Jeremiah 31 becomes the longest quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament. It takes up most of Hebrews chapter 8. Well, why am I telling you all that? Because I had to read all that in commentaries this week, and I just want you to know that I was well prepared. No, that's not the reason. Um, The reason I tell you that is that even in the midst of books that are sometimes confusing and challenging, there is great importance and things that we can learn from God. Now, I don't say that to say the rest of Jeremiah is worth disregarding. Just because I'm spiritually not able or intellectually not prepared to learn from it doesn't mean it's not worthwhile any more than if I were to look at a marathon and say, well, because I can't run that far, or a half marathon, well, let's be honest, a 10K, and say, like, because I can't run that long, that's a stupid thing to do? No, 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 just because I'm not prepared for it doesn't make it unimportant or invaluable. Um, But when we read Jeremiah, and we read Jeremiah 31 especially, it, it should point our eyes towards Jesus and help us see the hope that we have in him. So today's sermon's really only two parts. It's a short passage. Uh, the first part is what is the, what's the problem with the old covenant and what needs to be replaced? And the second part is about the new covenant. How does the new covenant work? So uh, four verses, two parts. I'm sure I can stretch these four verses into about 90 minutes, no problem. Let's, <laughs> let's get going. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Well, the new covenant, uh, the first thing that we need to know about it is that it replaces the Mosaic covenant. What is that? What are we talking about? Well, when you read verse 31 and 32, you hear Jeremiah talk about this new covenant is going to replace the obsolete Mosaic covenant that came before it. The covenant that had been established about 800 years before between Israel and Moses at Mount Sinai. So, quick word of introduction. What's a covenant? A covenant is an absolute agreement between two people or two groups of people that no matter what happens, we are committed to seeing this through. I'll do this and you'll do this and like a contract, we're not going to break it. Now, we don't have a lot of covenants in our culture. Um, most of our relationships are consumeristic. I will continue to do this as long as I want to. And if there's a better option that comes along, I'll go do that instead. For example, my relationship with Trader Joe's is not covenantal. It is consumeristic. 
as long as the prices remain what I'm willing to pay and the location is where I want and the parking is, well, the parking's always crazy, um, and as long as they have dark chocolate peanut butter cups, like, I, I'm in, right? But, but if Whole Foods were to lower their prices by, I don't know, like 80%, I would go there <laughs> instead, right? Um, so th that's, a, that's a consumeristic relationship as opposed to a covenantal relationship. What covenantal relationships do we experience in the world today? Well, I mean, the, the chief one is marriage, right? That's the time where you probably heard the language of covenant most often be used in our culture. We, in fact, the ways that we make vows, and at least most weddings, is we covenant to one another that no matter what happens circumstantially, that we are committed to each other. And so you heard that in the form of in sickness or in health, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part, right? We're covenanting to each other. Can you imagine a consumeristic marriage vow? Like, as long as I don't find someone else more attractive, I will totally stay married to you, or I am completely married to you unless I don't want to be anymore. <laughs> um, I think that was, a, that was like a Bravo TV show, is what I just described. Um, <laughs> no, marriage is and should be covenantal. So the question then becomes, if you put consumeristic on one end, covenantal at the other, like, how are you experiencing God? Like, is it more covenantal or is it more consumeristic? Fortunately, a lot of our religious patterns in our generation, in our culture, tend to lead on the more consumeristic side with God. Like, I, I, will, I will totally engage with God as long as he does A, B, C, D, and E, and F for me. As long as I experience positive feelings when I read the Bible, as long as people are nice to me at church, as long as uh, I experience community in a way that helps me to grow, then I'll totally be committed to God. I'll, I'll obey his word as long as it fits my definition of success in life, on and on and on. But God tells Israel that they've violated the covenant, that they're not treating him and they're not treating their relationship with God as a covenant, but rather as a consumeristic good and service. And Jeremiah says, you have broken, you have violated the way that you're to relate to God. How'd they do that? Well, in a word, sin. They repeatedly sinned against God. Not just in one way, but in a wide variety of ways. Here's a couple of the passages from Jeremiah that describe this. They failed to keep the covenant because they sinned against God. This is Jeremiah 7, verse 9. You don't have to turn there, but you're welcome to if you want to. As I read it, here are some of the different ways that they're described as sinning. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, burn incense to Baal, and all those other new gods of yours? And then come back here and stand before me in the temple and chant, we are safe, only to go right back to all those evils again. What are some of the charges that Jeremiah levels against Israel? Stealing, lying, murder, adultery, religious hypocrisy, idolatry. And then he has this, this cryptic verse at the end of verse 11. Don't you yourselves admit that this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves? Remember that line about den of thieves later. We'll, we'll come back to it towards the end of the sermon. A similar passage in Jeremiah 5 lists some of the charges against Israel. They refuse to provide justice to orphans. They deny the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, says the Lord? Should I not avenge myself against such a nation? A horrible and shocking thing has happened in this land. Its prophets give false prophecies, and the priests rule with an iron hand. And worse yet, my people like it that way. Here's some of the sins that Israel is described as having. They're, they ignore the poor and the orphan. They break the Ten Commandments. They actively practice idolatry. They are religiously hypocritical. Their leaders are cruel and malicious. 
Because of these violations of the covenant with God, they are going to be left on their own to deal with Babylon. They've abandoned God, and they're going to experience the consequences of it. Well, we read that, and we say, well, that's, that's sad. That's, that's harsh. But what does it have to do with us today? Are, are we in the same terms? And in a word, yes, right? All of us, like the Israelites before us, have sinned against a holy God. We look at that list, and we see so many things that are present in our own lives, individually or collectively as a country. And we read that, and we say, well, I've, I've done those things. Am I going to experience the same sort of consequences? Paul in the New Testament says, yes, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all gone our own way. Like sheep, we've all gone astray. And we all bear the consequences of that, which is separation from God. Like Israel, we were made to be in a relationship with him. But like Israel, we've chosen not to live in relationship with him. And verse 29 reminds us of the severity of that sin against God. Should I not punish them for this? Should he not punish us for our sin as well? Now, the follow-up question is, okay, well, that's, that's true me individually. That's what, as Christians, we talk about our need for a Savior. But what about collectively, right? Israel's being judged as a nation for what they've done to violate the covenant. Are, are we going to be charged with these same sort of violations as a country? Like, will the United States be charged with these things? Because we read what Israel's done, and we think, well, we do all those things as Americans, right? They're being charged with murder? Like, how many mass shootings by white supremacists have we had this year alone? They have sexual immorality? Well, I, we make TV shows about that. They are, have problems of idolatry? Think about how much we idolize celebrities and politicians in our culture, making them to be our saviors and our lords, as if idolatry is something we should be proud of. We name television shows after idolatry. They dehumanize and poorly treat children and orphans? Think about how we dehumanize the way that we treat children in the womb and at our borders. They're religiously hypocritical. They promote largesse and cruelty among their clergy. Gosh, just turn on the TV to see how, what kind of clergy we promote in our country. So when I look at Israel's sin and I say that they're going to be judged for it, it should be a stark warning to all of us. Now, that said, do I think that God is going to have the Babylonians invade the United States? No, because the Babylonian Empire ended 2,500 years ago. But, but also... Before we laugh at that, no, because we're not a covenantal country with God. In the history of the world, there's only been one people, the people of Israel, that were God's chosen people as a country. While as Americans, we like to think of ourselves as special in you know, like every way, um, we're no more chosen people before God than Gahanians or the Irish or the Brazilians or anyone else. Um, but like Ghana and like Ireland and like Brazil, we also, all of our sins matter before God. Repeatedly in scripture, we see that the nations of the world are in God's hands and we should be humble in assuming that God would never judge us for our sin. Well, Bob, I thought this was the happy part of Jeremiah. Didn't you say this was the happy? Didn't we sing, oh, happy day <laughs> earlier? I know Travis did. It was very loud. Um, when does this get happy? I mean, what, what, what hope is there? Well, that's the second part of the passage. It's so important. That there is hope in the new covenant before God. Because the, the reason that Jeremiah is so sad is because it comes at the end of 800 years of repeated failures. Right? God has told Israel what it means to live as his people, and they failed again and again and again. And before we cast aspersions on them, we realize we know the good things to do, and we don't do them, and we're in the same boat. 
we look at how often we fail to live up to God's standards and we see ourselves in Israel. And the deep hope that comes in verse 33 is that the covenant will change our hearts. Look at verse 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is so important. The new covenant changes the hearts of the participants. The solution that Israel deeply needs is not a lower standard of what it means to relate to God, but they need a new will and heart before him. Their hearts need the new covenant in order to change. And, and he uses this language of, it'll be written on their hearts rather than written on stone. This is a callback to Moses at Mount Sinai. One of the things you might remember when, if you've read the read Exodus 20, or you heard Tim's sermon on this a few months ago, or you just saw the movie when you were a kid. What does Moses come down the mountain with the, the covenant? He comes down with, with stone tablets, right? Um, they're written, it says in Exodus, they were written by the hand of God. What could be more helpful to know how to obey God than if he clearly spelled it out and wrote it out for us? Well, apparently the answer is if he wrote it on our hearts. Now, how many of you need more information on doing the right thing? I don't know, most of us don't. Most of us know the right thing to do. We just, the problem is our will. We don't choose to do it. Like for example, I totally know what are the right foods to eat. I know what are the wrong foods to eat. And I know if I want to lose weight, which foods to eat and which foods not to eat. The problem is not the knowledge, it's the will, right? Um, and that the good foods taste terrible and that <laughs> carbs exist, right? Most of us, most of us in marriage, know that we're supposed to love our spouse and treat them with respect. The problem is not a knowledge problem. The problem is a will problem and a heart problem and an excuses problem. M most of us know that when it comes to growing our relationship with God, if we really want to do that, what, you know, we need to pray, we need to read our Bible, we need to be consistent in serving each other, we need to put off sin. The problem isn't usually a knowledge problem, it's a will problem, it's a heart problem, a desire problem. The problem is not that we need more written on stone for us, it's that it needs to be written on our heart. And Jeremiah says there's a day coming where you're not just going to be given more rules, but you're going to have God's law written on your heart. This is a callback to the Mosaic Covenant. And he says at the end of verse 33, I will be their God and they will be my people. This is kind of one of those verses that your eye might gloss over at first. You say, okay, yeah, that sounds very spiritual and that's good. But remember, this is 600 BC. It's been 800 years since Sinai. If you're an Israelite person, and you hear, I will be their God, and they will be my people, you think, well, well what's the rest of the last 800 years been? It's kind of like telling an American, one day you'll be free. You're like, freedom's kind of our thing. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? We're not, we're not God's people now? No, this is, this is an intention to come back to what Moses was told. So, quick reminder of Exodus 20. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful scene, and if you haven't read that chapter in a while, I really encourage you to read it this week. Because God comes in the cloud to Israel. He comes on the mountain and they consecrate themselves and all the people, not just Moses, but all the people come and they stand there. And God says, I will be your people. I, I will be your God and you will be my people if you do A, B, C, and D. And how do the people respond? This is too much for us. They, they balk. They say, you are too holy, God. We, we can't be this close to you. We, we don't want to be this close to you. We'll just send Moses, like, Moses, you go up the hill. You figure out what it means to be spiritual, to be religious, to keep God happy, whatever. And we'll just do what you say, but, 
we don't really want that close of a relationship with you. And the whole rest of the next 800 years between Moses and Jeremiah are marked with intermediaries going back and forth between Israel and God, prophets and kings and priests. And God, at the time, Exodus 20 says, that's good because I am holy and you can't come into my presence. But Jeremiah says one day there'll be a new mediator. In Hebrews 9.15, it describes this as Jesus himself, who will be able to go to God on our behalf and bring us with him so that we can truly be his people and he can be our God. And the result of that, according to verse 34, it says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What's Jeremiah saying? He's saying the hope that you had at Sinai, the hope of the old covenant, is going to be fulfilled one day. Not when you hear more rules or more laws, not when you have a second or third chance, but when someone takes your sin on their shoulders. The hope of the new covenant is the hope that one day a new mediator will come who will be able to bring God to us and us to God, who will forgive our sins. So what's the evidence that that's happened? Well, well, think about what you know about the new covenant after this passage. You know that it has to be someone who's come from God himself. And John 3 says that we see that in Jesus, the one who's been sent by the Father, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. You know the new covenant's going to replace the old one. (coughs) As Hebrews 8 says, the old covenant has become obsolete in Christ. You know that whoever's going to come is going to have to be able to uh, take on the sins of the world, which Jesus has done on the cross. And it's going to have to be someone who can bring his spirit with him. Hey, Lo, can you toss me that water bottle real quick? I've got, I've got like 45 minutes left, so i got to drink it. Yeah. <laughs> can you throw it harder next time? <laughs> That's right. It's all soft right here. It just bounces off. It's, it's no problem. All right. Thank you, but I appreciate that. All right. Well, I, I, don't want, I don't want us to miss this because the New Covenant is so important to understanding what it means to know Jesus. Because if you are operating in life like it's, it's the old way, and frankly, that's how human religion tends to be, that um, if I obey, then God will treat me well, and if I disobey, God's going to curse me, then um, life is going to be very frustrating for you, and you're going to either become uh, very ashamed or very entitled. But neither of them are what Jesus wants for you. The New Covenant says <coughs> that he'll give his spirit to us, that he'll write the law on our hearts, and we with joy we'll be able to follow him. And that's what Jesus offers for us as well. Neither entitlement nor shame. Well, before I close, I do want to mention that there, there's one more thing to the new covenant that we have to look forward to. You know, the, the new covenant's fulfilled not just in Jesus' coming, but again in his return. There's descriptions of the new covenant here that are wonderful, but they're not really your experience of life or mine, are they? Like obeying God from a full heart, always doing the right thing. We won't have to be told what to do about God because we'll just know intuitively because we'll be so close to him. Like, whose life does that represent? Like, not my life, not your life. Like, in part, yes, in part, but not fully. Um, There is a prophetic quality what Jeremiah is saying that won't be fulfilled uh, until Jesus comes again or we spend eternity with him in heaven. And Jeremiah talks about that a little bit in the next chapter, in chapter 32. 
there's this really interesting scene. Uh, Jerusalem's under siege. The Babylonians are going to invade and destroy it. And God tells Jeremiah to go purchase a plot of land. And it's like, you know, I know some of you guys are realtors, and it's always a good time to buy. But like, when your city's under siege, it is not a good time to buy. Um, I don't know what Chicago title says when the cities are destroyed, but I don't think that's a, a good investment. Um, but God tells him, no, no, no. I want you to go purchase a piece of land, Jeremiah, to show the people that one day uh, Israel will again be here, that there is hope, that Jerusalem will not be obsolete. Well, when's that fulfilled? Well, it's fulfilled once, 70 years later, when Israel returns from exile. The Babylonian Empire is overthrown. The Persians allow the people to go back, as we talked about with Nehemiah and Ezra a few weeks ago. But much more than that, it's fulfilled in Jesus, right? When, when Jesus comes and comes to Jerusalem and dies there, on the cross for our sins, when there is a reason for hope that's not just a a legal reason in the city, but a deep reason for hope spiritually before God. But it'll also be fulfilled according to the book of Revelation when one day the new Jerusalem comes, when we have eternity with God, when this new commitment is fulfilled in completion. Why do I bring that up? It's because in the new covenant we see hope for today, but hope much more for eternity with God. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Right? We're, we're in, the, in the middle ground, that what, what's been called the already and not yet of the kingdom. That the new covenant has come in part, but there's a hope for what is still to come. So what do I want you to do for this in your life? Um, I would encourage you, before we take the bread and cup, to be thinking about this new covenant and old covenant and sort of how your relationship with God is playing out in that. Um, and if you're the sort of person who benefits from making lists, you might, might take a piece of paper, sort of make two columns, new covenant, old covenant, and just think about in what ways are you relating to God that would reflect the old covenant and what ways are reflecting the new covenant? Is your life more marked with um, an assumption that disobedience brings consequences from God and obedience brings blessing? Or are you more marked with an assumption that everything you get from God is grace? As you think about how you pray to God, are you assuming that you're entitled to certain things based on your moral behavior? Or are you assuming more that God has an open hand based on what Christ has done on the cross? As you think about how you treat people around you, do you tend to compare yourself with those around you spiritually, either above them or below them? Or do you tend to see yourselves as level at the foot of the cross? As we take communion today, I'd encourage you to reflect on the newness of the covenant that Jesus offers. Not that the old one was bad, but just that it's obsolete and made better in what Christ has done. Well, last thing I want to say before we take communion. You know, throughout the whole Old Testament, we've seen how these people point us to Jesus. And this passage of all really helps us to see um, how Jesus is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. But I also want to say that in Jeremiah himself, there's a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to be like. You know, Jeremiah's whole role is to warn Jerusalem that their sin was not going to be ignored just because of their beautiful temple. Remember I said that Jeremiah warned them, you've made the temple like a den of thieves and that God would allow it to be destroyed rather than sin excused? Well, that was fulfilled in Jesus, right? Jesus is the better Jeremiah. He's the one who went into the temple at the beginning and at the end of his ministry he called the money changers there, dens of, he called it a den of thieves rather than a prayer for all nations. He drove the money changers out of it and warned them that there was going to be consequences for their sin. 
But Jesus is the better Jeremiah because he not only correctly prophesied doom on the temple, but he offered an alternative. Remember, he told them, destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And he meant his body. Because Jeremiah warns us that uh, if we don't turn from our sin, there will be consequences. And Jesus says, yes, that's true, but there is something more that you need to know. That there's a way to come to God through me. That your obedience and disobedience is important, but what's much more important is whether you'll come to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Jeremiah looked forward to this new covenant with hope, but he couldn't enact it. He couldn't be the one to bring it. Jesus is the one who has created this new relationship between us and God. As we take communion this morning, we're reminded of that with gratitude and with joy and with hope, knowing that what we experience now is just a foreshadow of what's to come for eternity with him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this offer of the new covenant, and we want to be the sort of people that reflect uh, eternity with you. God, we look at our lives, and we look at Israel, and we see uh, disturbing parallels between our lives individually and collectively. And we long to be people and long to be a country um, that delights in your word and delights in your law. And we confess that so often we ignore you. Uh, we reject your leadership. We act with selfishness rather than with humility. God, I thank you that you've written your law on our hearts. And as we work through this process of this life, of learning what it means to listen to you and to listen to that law. God, we are grateful that you have forgiven us of our sins. I pray for my friends as we take communion uh, this morning. Um, God, would you impress the gospel deeply on each of us, that we would hear in, the, in this bread and cup your love for us, your care for us, and the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If those who are assisting with communion can come forward at this time. Um, a couple words of instruction. If you're visiting here at Grace, so this is maybe the first time you've taken communion with us, we're, we're glad you're here. Uh, what I want you to know is that we're going to pass the bread to the